Do you know that not all of your desires should be followed through on? Like not everything you want to do is something you should do, right? That seems pretty obvious, but again, from the mouth of babes, it's interesting. I, I was on vacation up in the mountains, and we um, went uh, hiking. with. I took a, one of my daughters on a daddy-daughter date. We do this thing. Liz takes our son out on a date. I take each of the girls out on a date, and we make it a special time. And I was hiking up the hill, and we went up this steep dirt hill, climbed up, and then there's this big rock, and we climbed up on this big rock, and we sat looking out over a valley. And below us in the valley is a freeway. And my daughter, instead of looking at the mountains ahead, looks down at the freeway and goes, Daddy, I really want to run into the middle of that freeway, but I'm not going to because I know that would end really badly. <laughs> Good point, child. I'm glad you realized that. And, and I think this is a key part of the Christian life. We do not deny that we have bad desires. We do not deny that we want to do sinful things because we do. Until we're in heaven, we always will. But what we do say is, I trust when God says that is a bad thing. That will end badly for me. And so I fight it with all my heart. Again, from the mouth of babes, they point out these interesting things. We're like, that's true. And I want, as we go through Psalm 36, to try and show you how David and God inspiring him is showing us how to look down these paths and say, where does this lead? And do I want to take that path? Look forward and say, what will be the result? If I may want to do that, but what will happen if I do? If you haven't already opened to Psalm 36, please do so in your Bible. Um, quick, just comment. There is a context on Psalms 35 through 38. Sometimes we look at the Psalms as just being individuals, and they can be brought individually, but many Bible teachers would rightfully argue that there is a specific order to these Psalms. 35 through 38 are all divine meditations on the wickedness in the world around us. David's looking and wondering, why should I not be like them? Psalm 35 is this call to judge the wicked. Lord, please do something. They seem like they're getting away with it. And we see here in verse 12 of chapter 36, the response that, yes, they do get judged. This contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Chapter 37, or some, Psalm 37, is this reminder that while the wicked may prosper in the short run, not in the long term, it is the righteous who will inherit the land. It is the righteous who will be blessed. So I would encourage you, if you ever get the sense and you look at the people around you and you're like, Man, they're getting away with it. Why don't I just join in? If I can't beat them, I might as well join them, right? Stop and read Psalm 37 through 38 and be reminded of God's point of view that it does not end well for the wicked. You may also notice that there is a title of the psalm. You gotta remember that, you know, you might have in bold what the Bible editors put in there, but then you have the phrase to the choir master of David. 
the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. That is the inspired title given by God through David. And it's pointing out the fact that David is king, but he's also more importantly servant of Yahweh. And so David's not here just calling us to say, hey, listen to the king who's wise and successful and has beaten a bunch of enemies. No, he's saying, listen to the God of the universe. Listen to the God who has created us. And as he goes through this, what he's telling us to do is how we should be directing your thoughts when you see the ways of the wicked. How in the world should I direct my thoughts? What should I think about when I see the ways of the wicked? It's broken up into two parts. The first part of the psalm, which is verses 1 through 9, is him comparing these two paths. And the second half is him saying, okay, I will trust God now based on what I have just meditated on. That's verses 10 through 12. So if you're taking notes, you'll see part 1, of this psalm, verses 1 through 9, is deliberate on the destruction, or on the destination of the two paths. Deliberate on the destination of the two paths. Think about it. Where do these two paths lead? The first path is the way of the wicked, which is fantasy. The way of the wicked is ultimately just a fantasy. Verse 1 through 4, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself with his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. David is laying out the fantasy of the path of wickedness. Now, he's working through this, and he's discussing and kind of thinking and pondering over, why do the wicked ignore the commands of God? Why do they hear what God says and say, no, I think I know better? Now, verse 1 has some challenging translation issues. The Hebrew that we have from what's called the Masoretic text, which is one of the oldest copies of the Hebrew Bible that we have, literally says, the rebellion of an evil man is in the midst of my heart. So some of your translations might say, if you have like the NIV, an oracle within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked, there is no fear of God before his eyes. But in you might notice on a little footnote in there that says, in my heart. So translators are trying to figure out what, what's going on with this. Um, there are some later documents, it's this challenging thing of textual criticism. There's some later copies that use his heart. But the oldest one says, my heart. And, and so we deal with this struggle of saying, well, why would someone on purpose or accidentally change it from my heart to his heart? Either way, the point is they're going to be the same. It doesn't change the meaning of the deceitfulness that comes from sin, but, but it challenges it a little bit. You know, the ESV lands at a saying it speaks to his heart. 
I think that the best understanding is actually to say, it says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in my heart. David is saying, not just the sinfulness that happens in those people's hearts, he looks at himself and says, this same thing can happen in my heart. I am not that different than the wicked. I have a similar snare in my heart. Sin comes in. The wicked has transgression, which means a breaker of the law, sin. And it speaks to the heart and says, do not fear God. Don't worry about him. It's the same lie that the snake gave in the garden. You know, Genesis 3, verse 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Sin's lie is always the same. You don't need to fear God. In fact, God needs to fear you and what you could become. That's what it always says. Rather than dreading the consequences of following through on the lies that sin offers, the lies of going against the king of the universe, it says, don't worry about it. That's why in our call to worship reading, in Romans chapter 3, Paul uses that as the climax of his description of how everyone is a sinner. He said, Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That ruins everything. We talk about in theology how the sinner is both willfully and blindly sinful. We choose not to fear God, and then that blinds us to everything else. We, we step over God's boundaries, and then we do no longer see where those boundaries are anymore. Verse 2 gives the reason there is no fear of God that David associates with. He says that important word, for. What is the reason that there is no fear of God? Because he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. That word flatters in Hebrew is an interesting word, which means creamy, slippery, easy to swallow. Such a perfect image, right? It's, it's easy to bring it in. It tastes good. It fits with my understanding. David here is assuming that when we see sin in our lives, and we will, that sin should be hated. For sin to be hated, we have to see past its allure and its lie, the, the slipperiness of it. But these people refuse to do so. They say, oh, it just, it just fits so well. It just goes down so easily. And then verses three through four gives a progression of what that lie leads to. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So a lack of fear of God leads to evil words. Those evil words then lead to rejection of wisdom and good deeds. 
This is someone who like knows what they should do and says, no. Or someone's like, I'm not going to really worry about doing that good thing anymore. Those good deeds then stop. And then suddenly, when he's sitting on his bed at night or on the couch in the evening, what's he thinking and dwelling on in his head? All his plans, which include all sorts of evil, sinful things. As Proverbs 23, verse 7 says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so he is, according to the King James Version. And this is the man who fantasizes about forbidden things and then takes the next step. He does not reject them. He thinks and meditates them, and then he starts sliding in. He no longer resists the call to evil actions. David says that the path towards a wicked life begins with a lack of fearing God and thinking, my sin's not so bad. Interestingly, I I was reading online this past week how the scientist personality, he's a personality, Neil deGrasse um, Tyson, DeGrasse, Neil deGrasse Tyson, was given this description of the world. And he said that the height from the deepest trenches in the ocean to the highest mountain is only a maximum distance of about 12 miles. Which, you think about that, you drive 12 miles pretty quickly in your car going 60 miles per hour. 70, 80 miles per hour, maybe. Um, But he said Earth's diameter is more around 8,000 miles. 12 miles, 8,000 miles. So he talks about it. He's like, if you had a gigantic cosmic finger and you picked up the earth and you rubbed it, it would feel as smooth as a pool ball. Just briefly, because those, those divots would be so mild in comparison to the whole diameter. And people often say, well, in the vast nature of the cosmos, my sin isn't very much. When I look at other people around me, my sin is tiny. I just do these things. It's not really that bad. It doesn't matter. And yet I can promise you, every climber sitting at the foot of Mount Everest, looking up and saying, I'm going to climb that, that height matters, does it not? And every person that you and I sin against, our sin matters, whether it's big or small. And most importantly, the God of the universe who is so pure that he cannot even look upon evil, it matters. We must remember God notices. In a commentary on this chapter, I found it very helpful. James Johnston a theologian and pastor, writes about different ways that we might believe lies. How might we fall into these different lives? Lies. And he says, some people say to themselves, you know what? I'll repent later. I've got time, right? You know, it's okay. I'll, I'll live my life now. And when I'm old and I've had all my fun, then I'll repent and I'll say sorry to God and I'll be forgiven but no one knows the time of their judgment. 
God warns about those who say, I will be filled. And he says, your life is demanded of you tonight. Other people will go through it and say, you know what? Look, I'm pretty good. I've done good things. Look, look at all the good deeds I've done. But God cannot be bribed. Jesus said to those who said, look, we've done miracles in your name. Be gone from me. I never knew you. It's not about your righteousness. It's about God's and what he has done. Third, you see, well, but I have a good Christian family. I've been in the church since I was in nursery. I know all the catechism questions. Like those kids got nothing on me, right? But Jesus condemned those who said, we have Abraham as our father. Others may flatter themselves and say, I have the right doctrine. I know my Bible better than anyone else in this church. I can tell you the truth of God's word. But James 2 tells us that the angels believe that God is one. And they shudder, or sorry, the angels, the demons believe, the fallen angels, the demons believe that God is one and they shudder. Satan's theology is better than all of ours. Maybe take a minute in your notes or reflecting on it and, and jot down some other ways. What are ways that people believe the lie that my sin doesn't matter, that I'm fine all on my own, that I don't need God, and then that takes them down the path of making excuse for living contrary to God. You might have ones that never even thought of. You write them down, think about them, maybe discuss them later. Now, thankfully, David doesn't just end there and just say, they, stop, they, they don't reject evil and it's horrible. He turns to some positives, saying, secondly, the way of God is fulfilling the way of the wicked may be fantasy, but the way of God is fulfilling. Verses five through nine. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Verse five returns to that wonderful Hebrew word, Hased, loyal love, promise-keeping love, covenant-keeping love. Remember, as we've read through these Psalms, David does not consider himself sinless. David asks for forgiveness often. And I would argue from verse one, David is actually saying that this same thing happens in his own heart. He is tempted by the same lies that the wicked believe. 
The mark of the wicked person is one who says, oh, I don't sin. I'm not tempted by any of that. It's, it's no big deal. David sees his sin. He hates his sin, and he finds hope in something greater than himself. He finds hope in God's love, which extends beyond the stars themselves. Someone said that God's love is like a guiding star in the heavens, beckoning wayfaring sinners. It draws us. When we see our sin, when we compare the evil of the world, what are we supposed to do but look to him whose love is further than the heavens, whose faithfulness reaches beyond the skies themselves? In, in verse 6, he reflects on God's righteousness and his just judgments. His righteousness, his judgments, his holy standard is firm and reliable like a mountain. It doesn't change. It's there. You, you go into a neighborhood again, maybe go to your old hometown, and you look around and you see different buildings, places torn down, new things built, street names changed, changed whole streets moved. But you know what stays the same? The mountain range. That doesn't move, right? And his judgments are as powerful and consuming as the seas themselves. Someone gets dropped into the sea and they are just sucked under. Like a just judge who comes in and vindicates the innocent, God protects his creation from destructive forces. And in verse six, it says, man and beast you save, O Lord. No matter how deep someone's sin, God's grace is deeper still. No matter how high his moral debt, God's righteous mountains are taller still. As Romans 5.20 says, the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God is more powerful than our sin. See, notice what David's doing. He's weighing the lies that the wicked listen to with the solid gold weight of God's glory. And it exposes the empty lies that sin offers. He, he's looking to God and saying, God, you're so much greater and grander. And then he doesn't just stop there. He goes on to give five blessings of those who follow God. He goes through and says, well, not only is God great, but he gives great things to his people. He says, first, God gives protection. We saw that a little bit at the end of verse six, man and beast you save. And he says, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. This is a great image, like a mother hen covering her chick. As I was preparing, I read the story of napalm being dropped on Hiroshima during World War II, and everything was burned, and a Japanese man returned home to find one of his hens scorched, completely burned, but safely under her wings 
were her little chicks completely unharmed by the burning oil dropped upon them. God, in the same way, sacrifices himself to save us, to cover us. The blood of Christ prevents the judgment from falling. Secondly, in verse 8, we see satisfaction offered. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. Those who follow God will find abundance and blessing. Uh, that, that word abundance means fat. Like these are not the scraps given out at food kitchens, but these are the delicious cuts of meat that you go over to someone's house and they bring out the best. This is abundance offered, a full stomach followed by joy. There will be joy, the river of delights. Delights and happiness, giving ultimately God himself to them. The last two are life and light. He says the fountain of life itself in verse nine. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. The fountain of life. Israel was much like Southern California, very dry in many areas. And they knew the value of water very well. They knew if it didn't rain, they would die. And so they collected their water in aqueducts and in storage things underneath the ground called cisterns. It was interesting. I was doing a quick Google search. Uncle Google is always very helpful. And I discovered that half of Southern California water comes from two aqueducts, the Los Angeles Aqueduct and the Colorado River Aqueduct, carrying us half of our water. And you might imagine the foolishness of someone who would say, why do we need to do this? Like, how much money are we spending for Northern California to send us their water? Like, we have a whole ocean out here on our shore. Let's just use the ocean water. And Israel does just that, choosing undrinkable water over the life-giving water of God. You can jot this passage down to look at later, but it's so essential. Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2, verse 12 through 13, begins Jeremiah's just loving tearing apart of the people of Israel and their sin and their rejection of God. In Jeremiah 2, verse 12 through 13, he says... Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God is the source of life. Both literally, we cannot live without him upholding us, but metaphorically of a good life. And the flattering lies of sin, which say, don't worry about him, worry about you. That wicked alternative always comes in. 
It's never just reject God. It's always fulfill his place with something else. And those things cut us off from the very source of life. We always replace God with idols. We always try and find life-giving water somewhere else. But God is the only true source. The last blessing he gives is the light. In your light do we see light. It is by God's light that we're able to see anything else. Like the sun reflecting off the moon, which allows us to see at night. See, when you read the Gospels, your mind must be drawn to passages like John 8, 12, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. David, or Jesus wasn't just coming up with clever phrases and like, ah, I got a really good image right here. I'm going to use this idea of light. Like he was a man who knew his Old Testament and who spoke to people who knew their Old Testament. And so when he says that, he is saying, I'm God. I'm not just a light out there. I am this very light that allows you to see all other lights. A person's deepest longing to know God personally, to make the world make sense, will only be satisfied in knowing Jesus Christ. See, David uses the tool of his eyes to focus on God and the blessings of God to refute the lies that the wicked are believing. Make sense? It's, it's similar to the discontentment that grows in our own hearts at times. Whether it's at Christmas time and you see all these cards of these perfect families with their great smiles and their perfect life and standing in front of their perfect toys, or you look on social media and you see all these things that people are doing and having, and you're like, oh, I want that. Why don't I have that life? Or you hear stories of people telling about the trips they went on or their perfect family or their great promotion, the things they were able to do and have. And you're like, why does God hate me? Why don't I have any of those things? Then maybe you look at your own Christmas cards, your own social media posts. You listen to your own stories and you're like, wait a second, I want my life. My life looks pretty good through that lens, doesn't it? Which is the foolishness of comparison. We don't know people's stories, but there's also the benefit of just stopping and being like, how has God blessed me? There's a reason in Philippians 4 when he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. There's this power of thanksgiving, and David is doing that. You see, He's saying, let me focus on God and remember the blessings that God gives. Where does that path end instead? We need to take our eyes off the lies by seeing the greater worth in God, in Jesus Christ. Well, to anyone who is an unbeliever here, whether you're new and you just walk through the door 
Maybe someone brought you, or some of us have been in church our whole lives. But we believe those lies, right? Where we're like, no, I, I, I'm in church because I'm a good person. Or I'm in church because I know all the answers. Or I'm in church because that's just what you do. Rather than I'm in church to love and serve the living God of the universe. We have to remember there's good news in Jesus Christ who didn't just come as a wise teacher or a good example. He claimed to be God. He claimed to live a perfect life that you and I are supposed to live and that we don't. And his life came to a very abrupt end when people like you and me believed that they could be better than him that they did not need him, that they were actually more terrifying than he was, and they would silence him. Every one of us has sinned in the same way. We all have these lies that we believe. We deserve the judgment of God because our rejection of him, our wicked actions, our wicked thoughts, our wicked desires. But Jesus didn't just die at the hand of wicked men. Jesus died at the hands of his Father in heaven because his Father poured all of of his wrath, all of his anger upon Jesus that was supposed to go to sinners like you and me. And so while we may continually fail, Jesus didn't. While we sin, Jesus said, no, I won't believe that. And so we can be forgiven again and again and again by saying, it's not me that I look at, it is Jesus. Forgive me. If you've never confessed that reality, that you are a sinner who has done wrong things and wanted wrong things, and that God needs to forgive you and make it right, talk to someone today. You can talk to one of the pastors. You can talk to anyone around you about that and say, what does it mean to confess that and to follow Jesus. But also Christians, you know this, we we do this all the time, but we have to take the lesson from this perhaps that you and I need to remember God's blessings in our life. Because even though we are saved and we follow Jesus, the lies of sin speak very loudly, do they not? Those temptations are strong. And we need to return our eyes to looking on who God is. And we need to listen to what he has given us and use your theology for life and say, which way will I go? And where will that path take me? So often we need to hear the lesson from other people and from ourselves. Don't Go down that path. It will only end in sadness. Look at what God has instead. It's not going to be easy all the time, but it will end in blessing. David finishes the psalm by responding based on what he's just thought about with prayer. He has gone and deliberated the destination of these two paths, and so now he's going to depend on God's faithfulness, verses 10 through 12. He's going to depend on God's faithfulness and say, ah, I'm going to do it that way. This is a reflection that he does in reverse order. So he 
It's going to start in verse 10 with God's steadfast love and remember that. And then he's going to end in verse 11 and 12, focusing on the wickedness of the world and of those around him and their fate. You see in verse 10 and 11, this prayer for God's sustenance, this prayer for God to fulfill and to keep him. Verse 10 and 11 Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. Interestingly, if you were to do a search in the Psalms for that phrase, steadfast love, or that Hebrew word has said, you would find most of the mentions of it are actually requests. God, show your steadfast love. Give it to us, O God. David says once more, O Lord, please show that love that I just thought about to those who know you. Those who know him are those who recognize his royal will and who want to obey him. They know him. They want to follow him. And so he says, keep me. Keep my integrity preserved from the influence of the proud and the wicked. Let not the foot of the arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away, both from attack, but also from bait. He would not have to say this as if he was impervious to sin and temptation. And I think this gives us an encouragement in our prayers where we can go to God in our prayers and say, God, don't just say you love me. Show me that you love me. Please love me, God. Keep your promises to me. As example, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, But God says elsewhere that there's no temptation except what is common to man, and he does not tempt you beyond what you're able, but always provides a means of escape. So why do we need to pray that? Because that is us saying, God, I believe you. I believe that you love me. Please show that you love me. You can believe something with all your heart and pray for it. In fact, that shows that you believe it. Pray, God, show me your ways are better, because they are. But he doesn't just do that. As he compares what sin wants and what the end result of temptation is with what it means to follow Christ, he ends this with predicting the wicked's stoppage. Stoppage isn't a really good word, but it was an S, and so I had to throw it in there. So predicting the wicked stoppage, how, what will be their end? There, the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. David used a specific tense here to say, you know, these wicked that I'm talking about, they're already on the ground. They're fallen. They're defeated. They are like those in Psalm 1-5, unable to rise. Psalm 1.5 says, The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They will be laid low. The wicked worship fleeting pleasures. And at the end, 
they will regret it. See, a time of ease, especially an ease of conscience that never accuses you and you never feel bad, and that does feel good in the short run, doesn't it? Like, we all like our conscience not accusing us and telling me, you're a good person. Look at all the good deeds you do. But we have to remember the end of that path. Puritan pastor Daniel Crawdad, you can find this quote partially in your bulletin as well to think about. But he, meditating on this, says, as water is deepest where it is stillest, so where God is most silent and threatening and patient in sparing, there he is most inflamed with anger and purpose of revenge. And therefore, the fewer the judgments be that are poured forth upon the wicked in this life, the more are reserved in store for them in the life to come. Where it is calm is actually where it is most dangerous. Where someone feels safe and comfortable is actually one of the most dangerous places to be. I think if I could encourage, you know, the parents and the grandparents in our church, both physical parents and grandparents, but also spiritual parents and grandparents, those of us who have lived through life, we have a great responsibility and privilege of looking to the younger generations and saying, you know, the world tells you, do whatever your heart wants. The world tells you, you need to transform the whole world around you to match what you feel. And in fact, you need to be angry at anyone who does not recognize what you feel. But I can tell you, if you just do what your heart wants, it's gonna end badly for you. You know, some of you have lived very sinful lives outside of Christ for a long time, and you're still dealing with some of the consequences of those actions. And you feel the pain of that. And you need to share some of those stories. Listen to people and they share some of the struggles and you need to say, come back and be like, let me tell you about how I did exactly what I wanted and it ended so badly. Let me tell you how that is not a good path to follow. And let me tell you about Jesus, how his path is better. Those stories need to be told that the evildoers, the path of my life is just comfortable and do whatever I want will end in a painful place. And many of you can testify to that. Now, we've seen throughout all of this, David deliberate on the end of those two paths. Which way will they go? And which one do I want to take then? And then when he has thought about that, he dives in dedicating himself to God's way and says, Lord, I know which path to take. May I take that and follow you? And as I began with, may I encourage us to realize that all of us can be wicked. We need to look not to ourselves and our own self-control, but to the faithfulness of God. On May 11th, 1960, a team of Israeli Mossad agents went into Buenos Aires, Argentina, and they grabbed and they brought back to Israel 
the Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann. They brought him there for trial before the Jews in Israel, many who he had had in his concentration camps and related to those he had sent to death in concentration camps. There's video recording of perhaps one of the most dramatic moments as a man named Yale Dinyer, a concentration camp survivor, got up and took the stand. And, and as he sat in the stand, he began to sob and weep uncontrollably. He collapsed on the floor, and the judge pounded the gavel, saying, order in the court, order in the court. A reporter named Mike Wallace went up to him and interviewed him later and said, what, what was that crying about? Like, were you just so angry that this was the man who you saw when you were treated like cattle, who you saw millions of people die with? Were you fear? Did you have post-traumatic stress? It was none of these. Actually, Dinier went up and said, this man was no longer the god-like army official sending so many people to this death, but he was just an ordinary, weak man. He said, I quote, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he is. He is just a man like me. Wallace, writing his article, summed up Dinier's terrible discovery with a terrible phrase. Eichmann is in all of us. This captures the very statement of man's truth. Because of the sinful fall, sin is in all of us. Not just susceptibility to sin, but sin itself. And so we must be called not just to passively go through this life, but to ask the question, what are the lies of sin and how will I say no to them? And that can only be done by looking and seeing the greater greatness of God. Let me pray. Lord, we do pray that you will allow us to see our sin, the ways we are tempted by it, and that we would run from it. Lord, our, our eyes can be so blinded at times because sin whispers to us in ways that make sense whether it is our politics, our comforts, our idolatries, our backgrounds, our family history, we all want to make excuses for our sins. And we pray, Lord, that as our conscience pricks us, as we feel confronted by it, may, Lord, we push back, not against the conscience, but against the sin. May we believe your truth and see this is the way it ends. Lord, I pray from this time that we might be able to leave here thinking over various ways that sin's lies seem slippery. They seem convincing. And may we instead pray, Lord, may we pray as David did. Lord, let your goodness be seen. May we believe, Lord, the end result of those who go against you. We ask, Lord, you would use this time to send us into the week ahead, 
that we might serve you in various ways to the glory of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Challenging and encouraging words, both giving us hope, but also uh, the need to come to God. I think a great hymn to close our time together is grace greater than our sin. As much as we have sinned against God, there is still greater